Pace Line is produced by the Cycling Independent with the support of subscribers like you and additional underwriting from Shimano North America. We are community-focused, community-supported, and dedicated to the whole of cycling. Always remember, at the Cycling Independent, if you ride bikes, you're one of us. The Cycling Independent, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and with me is my co-host, John Emlin, Robot Lewis. Each week, we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. Um, we were delayed yes. a little bit uh, in recording for a couple of different reasons. Uh, one uh, exceedingly solemn and one uh, Kafka-esque comical. Uh, I'm going to share this with you and our listeners. <laughs> Yeah. That's uh from outside my home uh, uh about an hour ago. <laughs> yes. Cool. The, someone is trying clearly trying to blow the paint off your building. I, I when I saw the ladder go up, I was like, "Oh, boys and girls, this is not good." <laughs> I, I yeah. don't know what the ladder was out for. Um maybe they were blowing the leaves right out of the trees. Uh, uh, that seems strategically, you know, we're, aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. Getting, you know, getting ahead on tasks. Right. Yeah. Yes. Um, but yeah, we were unable to record for two weeks. Uh, I forget why we missed the first one. My life has been such a blur lately, but last week I had to fly, uh, to Hawaii to say goodbye to my father, uh, who, passed uh a little over 24 hours after i left mm. yeah so uh i am now part of that uh unfortunate club that we all join sooner or later of being a person who has lost a parent um yep yeah uh and i now have a firmer understanding of what everyone else who's gone before me has felt um it's uh it is a weird thing to feel relief at the end of one's, uh, someone else's suffering. Um, I, I see more clearly now what a double-edged sword that is. My father did suffer a pretty fair amount at the end. Um, I have shared here previously that, uh, he and I have had a difficult relationship at times. And I'm just pleased to say that at the end uh, we were really good with each other. And I had a lovely moment with him where he was lucid and I was able to get in uh, close and get his attention. And I gave him a kiss and I told him I loved him. And he whispered, love you too. And, uh, you know, in the grand scheme, that's all I needed. That is all I needed. Yep. And uh, hopefully that covered some of what he needed. Yeah. Yeah, I my relationship with my father was good when uh when he died I didn't get any of those moments with him. He uh became unresponsive 
before any real meaningful conversations could happen. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I'm glad that you got that moment. Me too. Me too. Uh, it was, it was really meaningful. Um, yeah. So I am back and, uh, we're going to talk about bikes because, uh, bikes are a good time. Bikes are a good time. Let's talk about bikes. All right. Um, this week I want to talk about what mountain bikes cost. Uh, because the sorts of bikes you see in magazines and videos have become really aspirational purchases for those of modest means. Uh, unlike road and gravel bikes that include less technology, i.e. no shocks, the entry-level mountain bike, especially on the full suspension side, is what, $3,500? Yeah. Y- I mean, that's a, you know, someone was telling me how much do I need to spend to get a workable full suspension mountain bike? That is the number I would save. You know, you can probably find exceptions to that that are less expensive, but I would, I would worry about the uh, durability of that bike. I think, I think when you go below that number and maybe the number is 3000, I, I, you know, I don't want to be too specific, but I think when you go below that number, there's a very strong case to be made for buying a hardtail instead. Yeah, you can get more value out of that. But anyway, this topic was brought to my attention by a revolting listener, uh, Kent. Oh, um, he is angry about this. And I have to admit, although I participate with my own high end mountain bikes, I do think it's problematic that what we portray as normal in mountain biking is prohibitively expensive for a lot of people. Um, This starts to be, it doesn't start to be, this is an inclusiveness problem. And it feels Mm -hmm. like another way that cycling kind of continues to hold itself back from growing. Uh I'm not trying to say that there should be a great thousand dollar full suspension mountain bike, because I recognize that technology has real costs. Yeah. What I'm proposing is that maybe we don't always act like the $5,000 mountain bike is the standard. And I'm, I'm definitely guilty of this uh, on a number of levels um, because I ride, I ride, not, I ride high end bikes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is what I portray. But um, I think we're doing it wrong when the big box stores sell bikes that look like dual suspension mountain bikes for like two or three hundred dollars. Uh, <laughs> but they're just yeah. absolute garbage. Mm hmm. They think they can fool enough people with the price that it makes sense. What actually makes sense if you're selling a bike under $300 is to keep things super basic. I bet you can make a decent $300 bike, uh, but it has to not pretend to incorporate the technologies of higher end bikes. Mm -hmm. So this is a case of the high end tail wagging the entry level dog, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you'll forgive me for a moment of (laughs) self-promotion... (laughs) <laughs> I do have a piece in the current mountain flyer about hardtails. Uh, oh. And I want, I wonder if we need to re elevate the hardtail as sort of the standard trail bike in an, in an attempt to reset people's perception of what they need to get out in the woods. Uh huh. Uh huh. Because isn't that, that's what we really want to get more people on bikes in the woods, or at the very least we want everyone to feel they have access that it's not a sport sort of beyond them. Sure, sure, yeah. It feels to me like the fallacy of trickle-down economics, the idea that sort of input at the top 
will make its way down to the bottom eventually. To some degree, the technologies do find their way down. Yeah. But it's the it's the messaging that's skewed. It's as if Volkswagen only advertised Audi. Uh-huh. Uh, to make an analogy, or or you only ever get to read reviews of five-star restaurants. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. No more street tacos. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Uh, it, it's like we pretend that this is what the what cycling is when actually, you know, like I was at the trailhead uh, this morning. We uh, we just wrapped up riding and we rode back into the parking lot and there were people, uh, a couple were there. They had like probably what looked to me like 12, 13 year old mountain bikes. One of them was a hardtail. One of them was like a 26 inch dual suspension bike. They were stoked to get out and ride. That's mountain biking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's mountain biking. Yeah. Um, So I I don't I'm not arguing against there being high end bikes and I'm not against companies getting high end dollars for high end bikes. Uh But I do think maybe from a media perspective, um, we're shooting ourselves in the foot by implying that actually this is what the sport is. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Does that make sense? It it does. Uh, I mean, it's one of those things where there are a host of complicating factors here. Um, okay, let's get in the Wayback Machine for a moment and go back to 2010. Um, do you remember how uh, there were all these open mold uh, carbon fiber road frame sets coming out? And yep. there were the, you know, the... Uh, the super inexpensive wheel sets, some of which had carbon fiber rims. Um, Well, so that stuff still exists. You can still buy open mold frame sets. Um, It's not as easy to do as it once was, but they're still being made in Taiwan and in China, Uh, more of them in China than Taiwan. So to your point about mountain biking, um, if I only had a hardtail and I lived here in Santa Rosa, I would not be riding it in Anadel. I kid about how I'm amazed that anyone continued to mountain bike after like their first couple of rides on a 26 inch wheeled hardtail with no front suspension either and a short top tube and a long stem with all of that rock up there and 26 inch wheels. It's amazing anyone thought, yeah, this is a good time. Mountain biking in Annadale on on a bike like that is just, it strikes me as profoundly difficult. Um, But somehow, you know, people still found it a good time. Well, I think what I see is that uh, today's dual suspension bikes, the high-end bikes that I'm talking about, Mm -hmm. They facilitate speed in 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 very challenging terrain. Yeah, yeah, and and that's super fun, mm-hmm. super fun. Um, but that speed part isn't necessary. Well, I, I would submit that even for folks who aren't going terribly quickly, uh, full suspension twenty nine inch wheels allow you to keep moving across terrain on which you would otherwise be stopped dead. And fall over on your hip because you're on 26 inch wheels. Um, so, but we all did it. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, and I understand that I think what you're outlining is a little bit of an outlier case where you're oh. talking about terrain that is not right. accessible. And that was moving toward my larger point, which is um, most of the United States is nothing like Annadale. Right. And so I've been looking for uh, an open mold hardtail mountain bike frame because I have some old parts down in my garage. Um, uh, 10, 10 speed DREXT. I don't know. Some old stuff. I could theoretically buy a frame and a fork. I've got spare wheels. I've got all these parts. I would need to buy a chain ring and uh, I could probably get away with an old chain. But I was thinking about building up a hardtail to leave in Memphis at my mom's place. There's no rock in Memphis um, unless someone has imported it from elsewhere for a landscaping project. There's no rock in Memphis. (laughs) It's all river bottom land. It's all mud. Yeah, there are fallen trees you have to get over from time to time. But it's riding a hardtail mountain bike in Memphis is the way to go. There's, there's, there are no long descents where having full suspension is particularly applicable. I mean, you know, all the places I've ever ridden in, in Western Tennessee, in Mississippi, most of Arkansas, um, let's see, uh, there are certainly swaths of Colorado, um, not most of Colorado, um, yeah, there are lots of places, you know, and I haven't mountain biked in, in like Michigan uh, right, or right. Illinois, but there are lots and lots of places where you don't have to worry about big rocks being in the way, long descents that necessitate full suspension. Um, a hard tail it, in more circumstances than not is a perfectly appropriate bike. Yeah, I would say even here in New England, where we have a lot of rock. And we have some very technical riding available if you want it. We also have, we have everything from, you know, uh, packed dirt, uh, double track uh, on up. And so Mm -hmm. like this morning I rode, I rode my hardtail this morning in a place where I also sometimes ride uh, my full suspension bike. Uh, I'm certainly faster on the full suspension bike. It's a different experience, but it's a great one. Uh, either way. Um, so, yeah, I just I, I think uh, the industry is so anxious to get out in front of itself and say, like, look, here's the great new thing. Mm-hmm. And the 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 expense of doing that is by closing the door behind them uh, to a lot of people who would otherwise maybe be interested in riding a bike uh, in the woods. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In my other work writing about e-bikes, we there are a whole bunch of direct-to-consumer uh, brands out there that are um, selling bikes that they build as, you know, very off-road capable um, by virtue of front suspension and four-inch wide tires. Sometimes they do have full suspension. There's this really interesting separation it's easy to tell when something's an actual e-mountain bike and something that we call an all-terrain e-bike um Mm -hmm. with the all-terrain e-bikes um you may see front and rear suspension but very often 
there won't be any information about like how much travel the suspension has. Or yeah. sometimes like the front fork will have 110 millimeters of travel and the rear suspension will have 150 millimeters of travel, you know, uh, and maybe they're running 26 inch wheels. Um, yeah. And so it's one of those things where certainly that's a lot better than anything you're going to buy in Walmart or even Target. Uh, but they're, uh, they're, capabilities off-road are certainly modest um and so it's uh it's an interesting thing to kind of watch that and to try to steer people in a way where they end up with the product that is going to most satisfy them when they go out yeah yeah i see that i think what i see on the e-bike side is a lot of um, marketing copy that is aimed at non-cyclists or, or I should say aimed at people who are not experienced with bikes and current or even, uh, later technology. Yeah. 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 Um, if you're not living on, you know, the pink bike forum and, and know about, you know, the new coding on Fox's new shock or whatever, it, right. You know, a lot of that stuff becomes gobbledygook in a hurry. Um, there can be an awful lot of jargon. Um, and we, we, as we, as in the media, we not so much you and me, but the media often uh, makes a mistake. I believe uh, in assuming too much knowledge on the part of the consumer. And that is also really alienating to an awful lot of people. It's like, I don't even know what they're talking about. I'm out. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think that's, I think that's, I think that is true. Um, it's just curious to me that e-bikes are aimed. It's, it's like uh, full suspension mountain bikes are aimed at uh, people who are already very, very, very deeply in the, in whatever that tribe is. Mm -hmm. And e-bikes are mass market products. Mm hmm. Like, do you need paper towels? You might need an e-bike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and I mean, certainly you can go places where they're being sold next to dishwashers. Right, right. It frightens me. Uh, I'll just I'll leave it at that. It frightens me. Um, yes, yes. Uh, you know, just one quick little comment on trickle-down technology. <laughs> What we are seeing now at the thousand dollar price point in e-bikes is no longer scary. It no longer frightens right. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really terrific. That is <laughs> I good. Just, um, and you know, I'll admit that in in writing about e-bikes, I've had to develop a new set of eyes for what it is I'm looking at. Um, I mean, the last time I wrote about seven speed drivetrains. <laughs> <laughs> you know um yeah yeah we're used to a whole lot more gears um but you know i really delight in writing uh to this audience um uh i don't get much interaction with them but you know if i can help flatten that learning curve which has always been a big drive for me um that's a real delight and so i i really love doing the work that i'm doing cool yeah. Uh, this is where we take breaks, right? It is. This is the time. Yeah. 
Uh, oh, but it's just the one break, not multiples. That's right. Okay. We'll be back soon. I was a know-it-all bike mechanic back in the 1990s when I learned that Shimano was introducing the first integrated brake and shift lever. <sighs> Laughably, I dismissed it. I can recall making comments about how easy it was to move my hand from my bar to my shift lever. Though young, I was already well-versed in snark. And then I rode a bike equipped with Shimano's Dura-Ace STI. Ladies and gentlemen, I ate the crow, feathers and all. Not only had I been wrong about how handy the invention was, even beyond the ease of operation, what I learned was that I could shift more often and in circumstances too dicey to be willing to take a hand off the bar. In time, I realized that they increased my efficiency, allowing me to downshift even as I was breaking through a turn. Shimano fundamentally changed how I ride road bikes. And they did so for the better. All right, we're back with the Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. What's your poll this week? I want to talk about bikes that handle poorly. There's, oh, I've been on those. Yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, we'll get to that. There's a Sisyphean task to being a writer bent on trying to use words to articulate the ineffable experience of riding a bike. Okay? Uh, uh, Adrian Ballou, guitarist with Frank Zappa and King Crimson, once said that talking about music was like dancing about art. Um, and I, I would include writing about cycling is like talking about music and dancing about art. Uh, so as a reviewer, I've often talked in fairly objective terms about what a bike could or could not do. But I haven't often talked about what a bike that doesn't handle well feels like. And in this instance, I'm going to focus strictly on road bikes. So let's begin with an example. Uh, I'm a pretty quick descender on the road though not as quick as I once was. 20-ish years ago, I was sent a bike to review by one of the cooler small manufacturers in the bike biz. I like the boss man there and have long respected their bikes, and I was excited about receiving this dream bike. Uh, I was even actively asking myself if I might want to buy it after the review, and maybe that even sells it short a little bit. Uh, I was wondering how I was going to be able to afford to buy the bike. So certain was I that I was going to like it. The bike arrived. I assembled it. Everything went together just fine. I took it out for a shakedown ride and everything seemed just fine. Then I did a ride with friends up a canyon road uh, in central L.A., and when we turned around to go back down, one by one, each of my friends rode away from me. I even got dropped by the guy who was usually the first off the back of the group. The bike in question did not want to turn. I tried to lean, and the bike wanted to go straight. I found myself slowing down to the point that I had to steer through turns. It was insane. I looked at their geometry and on paper, 
I still remember this because I was so frustrated by it. Uh, the steering geo was fine. It had a 73 degree head tube angle and 40 millimeters of rake. Um, for everybody out there who doesn't nerd out on this stuff, uh, which I assume is everyone listening. Um, that's a very, very traditional road bike geometry. Uh, if you bought a 56 in 1982, I would be willing to bet everybody's bike had that, uh, had that geometry. Um, you know, it's a, it's a calm bike, but it doesn't, it's not resistant to turning. Uh, my body was telling me that this was not a 73 degree head tube angle with 40 millimeters of rake in the fork. The fork was carbon fiber. Uh, so there was no way that the rake was off by more than a millimeter or so, but because the frame was built in a jig, there was some opportunity though low that the head tube was unusually slack. I never did figure out the problem. And ultimately the bike went back to the manufacturer with less than a hundred miles on it, which is maybe one fifth of what I normally did on a bike in the course of reviewing it. Um, I have a brief uh, corollary to this. A few years ago, I was up in Santa Monica, uh, in the Santa Monica mountains on a group ride. And a friend of mine started down the descent before I did saying he wanted to get going because he was a slow descender. He had recently replaced the fork on his bike with an aftermarket one that the staff at the shop where he took his bike had convinced him, uh, his his existing carbon fiber fork on his frame was old and would break soon and that he would be safer and faster if he replaced it with this supposedly more aerodynamic fork. The thing is, his old fork had a rake of 45 millimeters and the new rate, the new fork had a rake of 40 millimeters, which is to say it slowed the handling on the bike rather dramatically. I also suspect that the axle to crown distance was greater on the arrow fork than it was on his old fork. Um, there is a geometry rabbit hole here that I am trying very hard not to fall down. Anywho, uh, <laughs> there are two different ways down this particular descent. And as luck would have it, he took one and I took the other. The upshot being I was waiting for him at the bottom of the descent and he couldn't understand how I'd gotten down there faster than him without him seeing me. Um, it was, a, it, he hadn't, he wasn't fully aware of the other way down. And so it's like, I was down there by magic. He's like, what would you do? Take an elevator. Um, I, you know, I told him that, uh, you know, it wasn't that I was fast, but that he was going really slow because his bike wouldn't corner. Uh, and I, I worked on him for the better part of a year to test ride something else. And when he finally did, and he actually bought the bike, he came up to me and told me that his new bike, uh, he showed me his new bike. And then he proceeded to tell me that he understood, he didn't understand a bike could handle so well, or he'd have bought it sooner. Yeah. Uh, the point here is that when someone gets on the right bike, it disappears beneath them. and they can carve the lines they want. The bike simply goes where they need it to. And if the bike has a lousy design, people will often incorrectly, that's, this is my big point here, people will often incorrectly come to the conclusion that they just don't have the skill set to ride a bike well. Um, and in fact, the bike can be the problem. 
it happens. It's not frequent. Uh, I would, I would, uh, volunteer that in general bike design today is better than it has ever been in the past. Some of the crazy errors we used to see in the shop that I worked at back in the 1980s. Um, we, we once got a run of steel frames from an Italian manufacturer that also had a factory in Mexico and I'm not going to name names, but it wouldn't be hard to figure out. We got a run of frames, uh, every two centimeters, 50, 52, 54, 56, 58, 60. They all had the same top tube length. Uh, you know, it's like the, the crew only reset up part of the jig as they built each of the frames. It was, it was just crazy, just absolutely crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't see things like that anymore. And so there's a lot to celebrate in that. Yeah, I, um, <clears throat> I, I sold custom bikes for uh, a lot of years and I answered the phone a lot of times for people who were replacing forks. Um, and I gave them this speech about fork rake. And it's important if you like the way your bike handles to match the fork rake and the build height or the axle, the crown. Uh, mm hmm is what it's called technically, but um, because otherwise you'll change the way it handles. Um, I, and I've also talked to a lot of people who have test ridden bikes and say, well, this bike is really nice, but I'm not, I don't really know how to ride it. Like it doesn't <laughs> ride well for me. And I, I've said to them, and I, of course it's natural to think, well, it's because I'm not very good at something that mm -hmm. something doesn't work. But actually, bike riding is pretty intuitive. Um, it's physically intuitive. Mm -hmm. and, and so if it doesn't feel right to you, there is a reason for that. And it's probably not you. <laughs> yeah, I, I would really love to see people trust their bodies more um, to trust yeah. those perceptions um, and rather taking rather than taking on a bad experience on a bike as being, oh, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't bike well. Uh, it's really an issue of, you know, maybe that bike really doesn't handle all that well. Sure. Sure. Uh, and it's a lot to take in because it's, it can yeah. also be fit related, right? It's, oh, yeah. it can be, it can be a case of, I don't, the rider doesn't have enough weight on the handlebars. And so the, the front end of the bike doesn't sit well, or it can be a bunch of things. So I understand it's a little overwhelming and a little complicated, to people out test riding bikes, I would just say, trust your test ride. Yeah. Believe it. Yeah. Yeah. And keep and keep going until you find the bike that you think, oh, yeah, this one feels right. Yeah. Uh, that, it, that's assuming you're not willing to invest in a in a fitting, which is I think we both recommend that. That's the that's the to me, that's where you start. If you're going to buy yeah. a new bike, go get a fitting. And that way, you know, even if you buy something that's uh, a production bike, you know, you you are you know exactly what to si what size to buy on the front end. I still yeah. see people on bikes that are too big for them. You know, sure. um, there have been any number of women over the years who were looking at like a, a tarmac or a Roubaix. And I told them, eh, don't do that just yet. You know, go find an Amira, which was the women's version of the tarmac. Or the Ruby, which was the women's version of the Roubaix. I said, I said to women over and over who I knew, 
Go find one of those and test ride them. I don't care if you have to drive 100 miles. Go find one of those. And every single time I got to do the little happy dance afterwards because they were like, oh, my gosh, it feels better. It's not so stiff. It doesn't beat me up and it handles better. I really like how this bike rides. I didn't know a bike could ride this well. And that uh, is also a, a testament to the folks at the Big Red S in Morgan Hill specialized those guys, they, they, they geometry very well. They geometry very well. <laughs> well, they geometry very well. And these days, uh, uh, more companies are understanding how to deliver good handling at both the low, the, the shorter heights and the, the higher heights. So if yeah. you're over 6'3", and over, if you're under 5'2", there are better options for you now than there were 10 years ago. Agreed. Uh, absolutely agreed. Yeah. 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 So, uh, is this where we insert our little caveat? We're not actually encouraging anyone to go buy anything for the sake of pure, uh, pure capitalistic consumerism. Uh, if you have a bike you love, please keep riding it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Don't, don't ever, th- if you have a bike that you love riding, <laughs> And I've made this mistake. Uh, Don't give it up for nothing. Don't sell it and replace it because you just think something else out there might be better. If you've got a bike that fits you and rides great, uh, hang on to it. Yeah. Winning. You've done it. You did it. (laughs) There we go. Alrighty. uh, Let's move on to some Paceline picks. Sure. So this week I'm picking the the Liet. Is this how we pronounce that? Liet. Uh, L-E-A-T-T I've is the name Liat, of the company. So, Liat. Yeah. yeah. Uh, could be Liat. Uh, it's the Liat 6.0 Clip V22 Shoe. As ever, I am mystified how the company came up with that name for the product. <laughs> and I invite them to contact me for help. What you call things matters, and you're doing these shoes a disservice. Seriously, the first hour is free. Call me. Uh... <laughs> Liat started as a motocross brand focused specifically on neck braces that would prevent catastrophic injuries. Uh, After some years, they evolved into mountain bike protection products, too. And I think that's what most people know them for. Yeah. It's only it's only the last two seasons they've made shoes for trail riding. Mm. I bought with my own dollars a pair of the 6.0 clips sort of speculatively. Uh, They were on sale. Uh, and I liked the color. And sometimes that's how I make decisions. Yeah, those are two great ways to make a decision. I, I yeah. endorse those. Yes. Yeah. I was curious. I was like, you know, I had looked at the shoes made by all the people that we know already make shoes. And I was like, oh, these guys make shoes. I wonder what they're like. Well, here's a good opportunity to try them. So these are very stiff sold. Uh-huh. Uh, two bolt, two bolt mountain bike shoes. When I first put them on, I was sort of astonished how stiff they were. Uh, they're not errand running shoes, I would say. <laughs> they're, they're not comfy for walking around all day. They are super stable on the bike. Mm-hmm. I really like riding in them. Um, I was talking to my friend Chapman, who I was riding with this morning, and he was asking me about them. And I said, you know, <clears throat> they're stiff enough. They're great, right? They're very like power, the power transfer is good. Um, the stability is good. Um, 
I probably wouldn't ride them for more than two hours uh, because I think you would begin to have toe the toe issue mm-hmm. uh, because you're you're sort of as you especially as you do sort of more technical things you're digging with your big toes mm-hmm. um, and so you could begin to have issues after two hours but I, I've ridden them up to that uh, comfortably. Um, they've got a single boa closure, which I like, and it's a, it's a forward and back boa. It's not the one you pop out to release. Um, so it's simple and I like it. They're easy in and easy out. They cinch down on the foot nicely. And, and actually, if you hop off the bike on the trail, they're not bad to walk in. I'm not trying to say this is like trying to mountain bike in a pair of stiletto heels. Um... (laughs) They're not bad to walk in. They're just not good to walk in, if you know what I mean. <laughs> if you know, you know. Yeah. Uh, right. They right. retail for one hundred and forty nine ninety nine, uh, but are on sale for one hundred four ninety nine as we speak, and that's direct from Liat. Uh, hmm. They come in black, Malbec, and desert. Uh, I got, got the Malbec. The no, I what? got the Malbec. Yeah, it's a new twist on my usual plot of only buying things that are black or gray. And they have a snazzy gum sole. That's what got me. It was the it was the like deep wine color with the wine sole. I was like, I'm curious about these. And look at that. Look at that beguiling color combination. Wow. I can't wait to see Uh, the picture. Yeah. Yeah, there'll be I'll have a review up on the site next week. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Very cool. What do you got? Well, so drivetrains, drivetrains have climbed in price to the point that some high end rear derailers cost as much as an entire drivetrain did in years past. Uh, I'm also noticing a shrinking number of choices in cassettes with groups. Uh, Altegra, Shimano's Altegra used to be the place you went for uh, to find all the most unusual cassette ranges um and in their latest edition 8100 they offer exactly two choices 1130 and 1134 um for riders who need really low gears because of super steep or long hills and don't want to change out their entire drivetrain wolf tooth makes a nifty little device called the road link that moves the rear derailleur down about two centimeters allowing someone to replace a narrower range cassette. And I, I expect it's probably still pretty wide, um, but with you can replace it with something even greater in range. Uh, so I put one on my tandem because the 3430 low gear that I had, thanks to an Altegra DI2 rear derailleur, uh, was not nearly enough for the hills here in Sonoma County, given what I was towing around behind me. So I replaced the 1130 with an 1142 and uh, that that uh, tired phrase leg saving uh, comes to mind. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, the road link goes for just twenty one ninety five. So it is not a big uh, investment. The cassette is likely to be a big investment, though. So there is that. I do need to issue a word of caution uh, some rear wheels use a rather viscous grease between the free hub and the hub. Uh, 
I strongly recommend having your mechanic remove your free hub and putting a much lighter grease uh, in that interface to prevent windup on descents. What can happen is the great mass of that big cassette at road speeds uh, will cause the, the chain to do a little bit of winding up and you'll see the, the cage pulling out. Mm. Um, I know one bike shop that uh, stopped selling them entirely because they uh, people weren't willing to replace the grease in there and then they would end up snapping their rear derailleurs uh, mm. because they were doing, you know, 60 miles an hour down some super steep hill. Uh, but I don't go that fast. Um, and uh, <laughs> I also know how to take my free hub off. Uh, it's a, it is a really, really nifty device. And, you know, on those instances, I mean, to be fair, you know, the 1134 available with Altegra is wider than, you know, we were able to have until just a couple of years ago. That's pretty terrific. I was going to say that. I, I think, and I think um, what Shimano's doing with Altegra is sort of like trying to return it to the road because there was a brief period where Altegra was really overlapping with gravel mm -hmm. usage mm -hmm. before they released GRX. Yeah. And then there was overlap between Altegra and GRX, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so, uh, I think what they're doing now is they're saying, oh, okay, Altegra is our road group and it's this. And yes, 1134 is wider than 1128 that we used to all ride on, on the road. Uh, and now GRX is the wide range solution. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, Altegra, since it's the number two group in Shimano's range, it has always gone through some periodic, uh, identity recalibrations. Um, you know, it, uh, it used to be that, you know, it was made distinctly different from Dura-Ace to keep people from putting Altegra parts on otherwise Dura-Ace bikes. Um, then they got wise and decided they'd make the spacing the same so you could interchange stuff as necessary. And, you know, then they started offering, you know, a greater range of cassettes with them. Um, you know, the interesting thing now is, uh, yeah, Altegra basically does everything that Durace does, but it's heavier and it lasts longer. Mm. Yeah, there's <laughs> it, it. It is now <clears throat> difficult to make the use case for buying Durace. Altegra is so good now. It is hard to justify buying Durace. Yeah. I mean, if you are... Um if you are a rider like me who is very active, but not very fast and really not concerned with weight, Altegra has just been the, like, go-to for so long. Yeah, yeah. They've just done such a good job with it. Yeah. And I've had some Dora-A stuff uh, because I work in the industry and it, it has come my way, but um, they build a lot of value into the Altegra group. It, and it's and so it astounding be, now. <laughs> it should be mentioned you can get a uh, 12 speed uh, 105 Di2 now as yeah. well, um, <laughs> which is another fantastic value. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> pretty remarkable. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Alrighty, everybody, that's a wrap on another episode of the of the Paceline, especially because I hear our little phalanx of uh, leaf flowers returning. Um, <laughs> 
bane of podcasters everywhere. That's like our two minute warning. Yeah. All righty. Before we go, I'm going to put in a plug for our other podcast, Revolting, um, which, as I like to say, is a podcast not really about cycling. Um, yeah, we get some we get some bikes in there. We sprinkle it in. It'll be worth your while. Yeah, yeah. If you like, um, if you like uh, uh, the jokes that twelve year olds like, um, this is the podcast for you. This is the podcast for you. Yes, jump right in. Yes. Uh, let's see if you if we aren't listed in a place that you like to get podcasts, except for Spotify. Uh, we can't get in there. Long story. Um, but if you'd like to us to appear someplace new, let us know in our comments. And while you're in the comments, send us some questions. If you've got an idea or a question or a request, please drop by the Cycling Independent and put a suggestion in the comments. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, truly, please leave us a good review on iTunes. It makes a difference for us. Um, until next week, I'm Patrick Brady with John Emlin, Robot Lewis. Uh, John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt, uh, thanks for listening to The Pace Line. <laughs>